Hello and welcome to the Covert Nerd Podcast. Today's a little different. We sit down with comic artist Lee Bachma and discuss what influenced his art and where he gets some of his inspiration from. So let's dive right in and nerd it up. Welcome to the podcast. Like I said, I got a chance to sit down with artist Lee Bachma and talk to him about what influenced some of his artwork that he does. And we were discussing, and one of the big things he mentioned was Conan. And so we expounded on that in a little bit and came up with the Barbarian Invasion. And so we'll dive into three different barbarians that have influenced his artwork over the years. I want to give you a heads up. The sound on this isn't quite as good. I had to work with it a little bit and make it work so that it was listenable. So I wanted to let you know that up front. That's why it took a little longer to get this out than I had planned. Also go to covertnerd.net. Look for links to Lee's art and other ways that you can contact him and let him know what you think. So let's get started and learn a little bit about Lee. He was a little nervous about the episode, but I'll tell you up front, he did a fantastic job, and I think we're going to have him on again. So if you have some feedback about this episode, send me an email. Go to covertnerd.net for all the other ways you can contact me via email, social media. So let's get started. All right. Well, thanks for uh, having me. This is uh, my first podcast, so I'm going to try not to uh, (laughs) mess this up too bad. But (laughs) Hey, it's okay. (laughs) Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a retired uh, military officer, and uh, so I had to kind of figure out what I was going to do with the second part of my adult life. I wanted to get into art and be a comic book artist because that's what I, I loved growing up was comic books. I wanted to kind of re-experience that sensation of being a, a young kid wanting to grow up and be a comic book artist. Sure. So a lot of my art's influenced by um, what I was passionate about when I was 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. And that just happened to be kind of a golden age of this barbaric invasion yeah. that we're talking about into America that, you know, with the Conan, Thundars, the Beastmasters, Warlords, so on and so forth. So I kind of got back into that, and that's uh, where I am today. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we picked out three that I think you guys will like and you can probably relate to. And like you said, we're going to start with Conan, which is probably one of the bigger, more common in pop culture, it is Robert E. Howard's Conan stories. One of the probably guiding, at least what I found on the internet when I was researching this, is the start of the barbarian invasion, for lack of a better term, was Frank Frazetta's artwork. And I will put some links in the show notes of some pictures of his artwork. And I guarantee you, most of you out there, most of you will know exactly who we're talking about when you see some of these iconic covers. We've got one here of you know, the barbarian, muscular barbarian Conan standing on a basically a pile of bodies and his sword in his hand, which was pretty much encapsulates the whole story of Conan. And so if you check him out, it's Frank Frazetta, his artwork. Excellent. He won a bunch of awards, Eisner Awards, for some of his comic book, and, comic book art. And he was in the Comic Book Hall of Fame in 95 and then the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 99 and many, many others. But he not only did Conan art, he did a lot of other fantasy art, but I think he's probably most well-known for his Conan art. Yeah, Frazetta is, um, yeah, by and large, uh, he's kind of like the, the godfather or the, or the king of that sword and sorcery fantasy art that, uh, you know, kind of, I think, brought barbarians back because Conan was kind of a property of the you know, 20s and 30s, if I yes. recall. Yeah. And then, um, you know, like we were discussing earlier, like Frazetta may have been kind of influence that brought that back. And then, you know, yeah. Marvel launched the comic book, which, you know, then brought the movies and then brought this whole 
plethora of barbaric pop, pop culture in the like late 70s, early 80s. And that's kind of his style, extremely detailed and just almost over the top. You know, the muscles are over the top. The axes are being <laughs> swung clear back. And right. there's even an article I read in the AMRA fanzine that they did way back in the 30s and 40s for, for Robin E. Howard. And they talk about the best weapon they could use back in that time. And it came to the conclusion that the sword was the best. And sure. he goes into all the details. But <laughs> anyway, Frazetta really just exaggerates. The barbarians have these giant beards. And it's just, just fascinating. Right. But, you, uh, when you, you said earlier, like one of the pieces we're looking at now is you know Conan standing atop this uh, pile of bodies. And just talk about exaggeration. Like yeah. how much killing would you have to do in one spot to literally pile bodies on yes. top of each other I mean, like, who keeps coming and when, one guy did it yeah like you know when you see a guy standing on you know a forming pile of bodies why would you yeah yeah leave it, that guy hey, alone I, i'll admit it, i'm chicken i would have run i'm like yeah you know he's he's standing on a pile of bodies i'm done i'm out of here we'll, we'll exactly. just figure it we'll find some other way yeah <laughs> that castle isn't worth it exactly <laughs> but yeah you talked about the 30s so for those of you that don't know the Phoenix and the Sword appeared in Weird Tales in December of 1932. So that was Robert E. Howard's first published Conan story. And it was an 8,000-word essay detailing the Hyborian Age. That was his setting. But the probably the big one was The Tower and the Elephant. And that was, I think, the first story I ever read. And what's fascinating about that, when I read it, I thought, okay, this takes place in a pre-modern era after the, after the sinking of Atlantis, but before the modern age. But the Tower of the Elephant talks about, spoiler alert, there's a, the uh, elephant, so to speak, is an alien from another planet from a far-flung galaxy and had been on Earth for thousands and thousands of years. So he just sets up this whole vast world to play in that Conan can play in. And I thought that was, I was like, wow. There's this whole universe that Robert Howard's created, and this alien has been there for a long time, and it's... Yeah, I, I totally forgot that the Tower of the Elephant, that that elephant creature in the end was a uh, alien. They found him in a, uh, let's see, I think it was the in a jungle in Kitsa, that's how you pronounce the, the country. But anyway, yeah. he had, there was multiple of them, but he was the last one left. Okay, yeah. It's... It, when you say that, it just really surprises me because uh, I, f I forgot about the sci-fi undertones that were in what is classically known as like a sword and uh, sorcery genre that, um, well, Robert E. Howard kind of almost defined. You know, he's one of those pioneers in that genre in the 30s. Oh, yeah, definitely. There was, he had a lot of influence from when I was reading about him, H.P. Lovecraft and him. I guess would exchange letters, and oh, so yeah. makes total sense with the alien-shaped uh, or elephant-shaped alien. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's Lovecraftian. <laughs> that whole idea concept was just fascinating. In his other book, he wrote it takes place in Roman times. I forgot the name of it now. He meets these snake people, and the snake people are in Conan's stories as well. But they talk about the snake people being there long before humans and. There was this whole intergalactic time frame where there's spaceships going to and from Earth. So this would have taken place before Atlantis. Okay. Way, way back. But he talks about spaceships and then that whole their whole race died out and and then the Atlanteans showed up and then you get to Conan's time. But again, it stretched back even further. So sure. he's exploring that whole this is a lot older than we think yeah. concept. I don't know if I'm thinking of the same timeline you're talking, but I know Robert E. Howard had a character named Cole. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, there's Cole, right. and he was Atlantean time, right. 
But this one was the last of the snake people had infiltrated England during the Roman times. Okay. And I, oh, Cormac. Cormac. Oh, yeah. Okay. There I we go. Cormac that. MacArthur, I think is how you pronounce yeah, yeah, it. That. There we go. Yeah, Cormac. Yeah. Anyway, it talks about him, and, and he had talked to the snake people, and they give him this whole backstory. And, again, that was just, wow, I was just impressed with that. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the, the Cormac, but I do remember the coal that, and I was always fascinated that Robert E. Howard had this whole mythology in his head that like transcended like multiple like eons basically where Cole's people in Atlantis were kind of like wiped out and then like somehow they resurfaced and in Conan's world I think they were the Picts which were like a different breed of barbarians that live like yeah. west of where yep. Conan yep. Yep. Or so they, they live on that west coast and actually I think Conan is a direct descendant of Cole's yeah, he's Atlantean. Atlantean right and, and they I, settled in the north right and I think there's even like I remember some references in some of the, I don't know if it was in actually Robert E. Howard's writings, maybe it was in the comic books where there was like some Atlantean artifacts that had still like resurfaced in Conan's time and it was kind of like this homage back to the, the Cole stories and it was, it was just very well tied. They had a, a story later. I don't know if Robert Howard, he didn't write it directly, but it was L. Sprague de Camp right. did Conan of the Isles. And he went, it was his later years after he'd become king, and he was kind of getting tired of palace life and wanted another kind of a final adventure. Midlife crisis for a barbarian. There you go. Instead right? of buying a Camaro and chasing <laughs> teen girls, he hops on a ship and heads out in the ocean. Right. So Whatever mid-age barbarian does, right? There, yeah, why not? <laughs> so, so anyway, he, yeah, he hops on a ship, heads out west, bumps into this island that has, it's left over from Atlantis, and there's some people still there. I don't know if he, Elsprague de Camp, got some of that information from maybe an outline because a lot of the stories, if you look into it, he didn't, I think he only completed 22 stories that are from beginning to end. Yeah. Robert E. Howard, like he, uh, yeah, unfortunately like committed suicide early yeah. and, um, he was 33. Yeah. He, uh, only had a handful of, uh, short stories written for that weird tales. And then I think he had maybe one or two full length novels, maybe just yeah. one. And then a lot of unfinished drafts that other authors yeah. took up the torch on. Yeah. Ellis Sprague de Camp and several others took up, he may have written, you know, half a page, right. a thousand words or less, and they just kind of... Anyway, he went to that island and found these Atlanteans that were left over, defeated them, and then went even further west, you know, sail off into the sunset, so to speak. Yeah, and the, the typical American cowboy one. I will not be tamed. I will, yeah, I will yeah, retain yeah, my freedom yeah, forever. Yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, at the end, it was kind of interesting. They said, or he, Conan mentions, there's rumors of this other land farther west. Oh, the and New if you World. Know, if you know the geography of Conan's Hyborian Age, it's all Africa, Asia, Middle East all put together, but he's talking about North America, so he kind of slips that in. Yeah, it's like that, um, what's that scientific term where there was like those supercontinents before they all split? Yes. Yeah, I don't know if that was like back in the science in Robert E. Howard's day, but he totally called it. It's like a supercontinent of like Asia, Africa, and Europe all yeah, smashed yeah. together. Yeah, they even, I think it was Elsprague de Camp or somebody came up with a kind of a post-history, several hundred years after Conan had died and what happened, the Picts ended up taking over pretty much kind of like a, a Roman invasion because right. the Picts were considered the barbaric people of that time. How the Picts just overran the whole area right. and put everything into chaos and then there was a massive earthquake and you know then uh, Samaria became... Scotland and Ireland and then Africa split off and kind of right. how everything then became the modern right, map that, that we would look at. Continental split and a, a dark ages and a reemergence of the land we know it as it is today, right? Yep. Yeah, that is, that's just brilliant. 
the, the books, I actually did not even read um, the full books and short stories until I was probably well into my teens, maybe in the college years. But the one that stands out most to me is The Hour of the Dragon, which I believe is the only full-length novel that Robert E. Howard written, uh, where Conan's already a king and he's well-established and he's in those you know, shenanigans of these sorcerers trying to usurp his room. He has to lay down the barbaric law only as, yep. <laughs> only as he knows how. You know, yeah. Lop solve, off some heads. Right, solve every problem with a battle axe. Gotta love it. But I do remember Hour of the Dragon being phenomenal, but mostly Conan's influence on me as a younger kid was the, the Marvel comic books. I mean, at one time, they must have had three or four comics and some of them were adaptations of Robert E. Howard's stories to adapt into comic form and some of them were just the imaginings of their writers and Roy Thomas probably being the biggest one but yeah those 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 were the earliest like great Conan stories for me and then um, the novels were just um, you know icing on the cake as I grew up oh, and, yeah. and got deeper into the lore and in, into everything yeah I agree I, I have the the novels that came out I think it was in the 60s where they put them all together and tried to put them in sequential story order. Oh, the Robert E. Howard yeah. original stories. Yeah, 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 and a lot again, a lot of them were finished by El Sprague de Camp. Sure. So I guess the true purist out there, if you're a purist, Conan, they have a, a book out there that has just Robert E. Howard's stories, finished or unfinished, mm -hmm. and they put them all together in like it's 400 some pages. I think that's the one I have because I, I remember some of them I, I, I popped open reading it and there would literally just be like a 400 page outline or just the beginning of a story and then it, that would cut off. Sure. And then I, I remember reading some of those and I'm like, oh, this you know reminds me of Conan issue like 181 or something. I'd look yeah. back at him like, sure enough, they fully adapted this like, you know, tidbit into a full length. Talk. Let's move into the comics, I guess. They have Marvel did it first. Yep. In the 70s and then 80s. Yep. And then I think uh, Dark Horse got a hold of the property. Yeah, Dark Horse picked it up, I want to say, in the early 2000s maybe. Yeah. And their they're they're run just ended not too long ago, maybe here in the last few months, yeah. when Marvel reacquired the rights. And actually, I just saw on the internet not too long ago that Marvel's first new Conan comic since like the 80s is going to be in January of 2019. Uh, so I'm pretty stoked to yeah. see that coming back yeah we'll see how they do i just i remember i have a few of the 80s comics that marvel put out and then i have some of the dark horse ones too and i thought the the 80s ones was kind of maybe you can since you read them more they were some of the comics in my opinion kind of hit and miss sure and i remember one i thought it was kind of funny they didn't draw what conan was seeing so what they did is did a, a word bubble or thought bubble of Conan describing what he was seeing. Interesting. Instead of drawing it. And I thought that well, it's kind of weird, but I, I'm guessing maybe what they couldn't either draw it or they couldn't fit it in the panel or or something like that. That's I thought interesting. it was kind of interesting. I don't think I've seen that one, but that's Yeah, that's I'll have to find it. it. It was kind of funny. But yeah, I thought they they did a good job. It's that classic classic eighties art style in my opinion, which is right. just is just really interesting and, and very detailed. All done by hand. Right. You know, no computers. Right. I think um the guy you're probably talking about, like John Busima, he's like my favorite uh Conan artist from like the seventies and eighties. Just to me like just defined what Conan looked like in the in the comic book. But yeah, you're right, like uh, Marvel, I think at their height had four or five Conan titles. Like simultaneously they had like King Conan, normal Conan, there was like a savage sort of Conan magazine. There was like a Conan Saga magazine, and like you said, there was so much Conan stuff coming out. There was some, there was some poor quality stuff. I'm yeah, not going yeah. to argue, but um, sure, yeah. They, when you have that many, you know, and I think you got to give some credit to Marvel though, because I think they kind of brought that, you know, maybe off the popularity of Fr Frazetta's work, but 
you know, Conan had kind of maybe fallen away in popular culture after, you know, Robert E. Howard's run in the, in the 30s, other than some of those pulp novels you talked about in the 50s and 60s or whatnot. But then once Marvel showed how popular it could be in the comic books, then we got this, like, landfall, or you know, like this yeah. landslide of barbarians, you know, from Dundar and Beastmaster and the Conan movies and so on and so forth. It just went on and on. And, and you even see, like, DC trying to keep up. You know, they released The Warlord and Claw. Yeah. And there's all these other titles they were trying to – you know, get on the coattails of this like sure. popularity that was happening at the time. Well, let's talk about the movie. We've got the Conan the Barbarian movie, of course. Arnold Schwarzenegger was starring in it. And when did you first see it? I, I want to say it wasn't in theaters. Uh, you know, we watched it on the VHS yeah. uh, back when you had to when you had to rent VHSs and you had to rent the VCR along with it. Yeah. And uh, you had to rewind it, or you'd get like a penalty yeah. if you you know you get charged. Be kind, extra. rewind exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I, I do remember watching that at home, and um, you know you couldn't have cast a, a better guy than Arnold oh, Schwarzenegger yeah. to play Conan the Barbarian. But what struck me that film uh, when I was watching that as a kid is I don't think other than the there's that preamble and like the prologue, it goes like for 20 or 30 minutes without any dialogue. It's just like action and yeah. like you know gesture, and it was all like, but you understood exactly what was going on. And it's it very was visual, very visual, and it was like just awesome how they could communicate this powerful message without having you know Arnold Schwarzenegger just like glub all these lines yeah. in this thick because he, uh, he at that time yeah he knew very little English right, and so I think that was a perfect casting for him. Do you think it fit Robert E. Howard's Conan somewhat? I, I don't. It did not follow Robert E. Howard's Conan, to my uh, to my knowledge, because uh, okay. in in the books, like Conan, like stayed with his people and like he battled the Aquilonians at like the Battle of Venarium, and then he at some point in his young, you know, like 16, 18 years old, he decides to make his way out into the world, and becomes like a thief and a reaver and an adventurer and then a general and eventually a king. Well. In the movie, like he's as like a youth, he's like captured by these slavers, yeah. and he's like, you know, he has to like grind the salt at this wheel of woe or whatever, yeah. Yeah. and that's you know, apparently you can get like these like perfect like bodybuilder muscles just by pushing a wheel around in a circle for twenty. Who would have thought? Totally weird. Yeah. Who thought you could do that? You know, but uh, and then he you know becomes a gladiator. Anyway, in the movie, after he becomes a slave, he becomes a gladiator, and that's how he learns to fight, and then he eventually you know gets his freedom. So the origin story is totally different, but I think the theme of the character is the same. And I, I think they did a good job of capturing that uh, essence of what that barbaric character is. Yeah, I think he lets his sword talk. Exactly. So I think the overall theme, <laughs> that, that kind of fits it. I watched it, yeah, exactly, on VHS. And, and uh, yeah, I was just like, wow, this is really different. Yeah. Oh, and James Earl Jones as, James the, Earl as Jones, the wizard. James Earl Jones, yeah. Oh, my goodness. You couldn't have cast that better. <laughs> that voice and that those crazy eyes when he turns yes, into a snake. The snake. Yeah, oh, it was just perfect. Bizarre. And then there, of course there's Conan the Destroyer that came out in so Conan the Barbarian was in eighty two. Conan the Destroyer was in eighty four. I thought the and like most people, the eighty four one was eh. It's yeah, okay. It's not it doesn't have the magic that the first one had. Yeah, yeah. Well and then they had when I was researching, they had a third script ready for him. He didn't want to do the movie. Right. And so that ended up being transferred and morphed into Cole the Conqueror. They did a movie in the 90s. Right. And that was kind of, they took that script and kind of 
mor- morphed it into Cole the Conqueror. Right, and we were actually talking before the show that there was kind of like almost a second resurgence of like barbarian oh, yeah. popularity in the 90s with like the, the Hercules and the Xena. And then obviously, you know, Kevin Sorbo of, of Hercules fame caught on and he got to play Cole in the yeah. uh, in the rejected uh, Conan script. Yeah, the rege- yeah, exactly. He got the left Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. leftovers. <laughs> he did. He got the there was like you said, there is a in then in 92, there was a cartoon, Conan the Adventurer. Right. And Conan, then Conan and the Young Warriors was in 94 and that was produced on CBS. Right. And then Conan the Adventurer, the live action, was in 97. So, yeah, definitely, even though Conan, the, the movies had come and gone, and by then, by definitely by the late 80s, the comic books that Marvel doing, were doing had kind of run its course. Sure, yeah, they were done. But you still had this resurgence on TV of Conan and, and others, like you said, Hercules and... and he had, well, he had a Red Sonja movie in there, too, which yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger was in as well. Yeah, not as Conan, though, which was really yeah. weird. It always Watching that show screwed me up. I'm like, this is Arnold. This is Red you know, Red Sonja. Why is he not Conan? You yeah. Know? Yeah. I'm sure it was some copyright or something. They didn't have the rights to it, but Probably. it was so unsettling. Which I'm surprised he did because he was trying to get, kind of get out of that. Right. Casted, but sure. I wish he – well, you know, there is talk of in February of 2018 – there is reported that a, a Conan TV series is in the works. For really? Amazon Prime. That would be sweet. They're talking about it. And then, of course, they're talking about bringing Arnold back for a Conan movie that'll take place, like in the books, you know, long after he'd become king. And right. He's much older. He's now. about to run off to the islands yeah, and into the sunset. The <laughs> I, I'm wondering in that story, or in one of the later stories, his son is with him on some of his adventures, so maybe. Oh, that's right. I do remember he did have a son in some of the Conan the King comic books. Yeah, he was okay. fe- he was a featured character in some of those. I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah. In the books, he has. I have more experience with the books. It has a story that he goes way south and runs into some leftover serpent men, and they kind of go back in the history of that. And okay. Defeat one of his wizards that had been antagonizing him for years, and yeah, and whatnot. So it's the sword and sorcery that <laughs> uh, that we love. So, but yeah. So there's Conan. Any other last thoughts on that? I know they've had some games. They've had video games, RPG games. Okay, yeah, so the Marvel comics, you talked about Conan the Barbarian, mm-hmm. ran from 70 to 93. I didn't know it went wow, quite it that long. longer than I thought. Savage Sword of Conan went from 74 to 95. Okay. And then Dark Horse launched their series in 2003. Yeah, that was. those were some uh, bleak days from 95 to... Two, yeah. Was it 2003? 2003. So he had about eight years of nothing. Of no Conan comics. At all. And uh, yeah, those were some dark days in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought the, the dark, I have a few of the Dark Horse ones too. I think they did a good job of, of translating. Right. And I think the artwork, well, you know, the Marvel artwork's good, but I, I thought the, the Dark Horse got a little bit better. They, yeah. also, they both have their nostalgic. Right. I, I think the Dark Horse, the artists, because they had a parade of artists that they were always replacing about every 10, 12, 20 episodes. But some of them are really great, and some of them, uh, it, w- it wasn't really my style. Yeah. All right, I'll just put it. It's not my style. Um, On the Marvel side. Yeah. yeah. And um, what I thought interesting about the Dark Horse run, unlike Marvel, Dark Horse actually tried to put, like, Conan's life in sequence. So, like, yes. they put you know, those, all those Howard, uh, short stories and novels in order. And then, uh, that, you know, the scholars say that they're in, and then they tried to fill in the gaps between them with their own, you know, individually created, 
adventures, and you can kind of see how the life of Conan went from youth up until where they ended their run. Where I remember he, that he wasn't a king yet, but they, they did a they did a separate run as him as the Conan the King. But the Marvel comics from the seventies and eighties didn't even try to keep it in order. It was just like this <laughs> random, random adventures, yeah. which is kind of how actually Howard released his yes. short stories. If I recall, they they jump back and forth. Like the first one, he was a king. The next one, he was a young thief, and back and forth. And the, he left kind of the scholars to piece them together and say, how does this all fit into, you know, the life of this barbarian? It's kind of whatever was scratching that itch at the moment for him. Right. Uh, let's look at Conan being a, a pirate. And right. He's in his 30s. And then, you know, like the first, the elephant uh, in the tower took place when he was probably 19 or something like that. And right. Yeah, yeah, there's no rhyme or reason. Right. Well, you, you jogged my memory on like an interesting Robert E. Howard quote, and I'm going to butcher it, so I apologize okay. to any Robert E. Howard fans out there, but when he was initially writing Conan, he has this great quote about how he was struggling to write this story, and suddenly like Conan appeared to him in the room and just like, write this, you know, and he was like, the character was so real for him, it was like, was basically there for him. And Very then, vivid imagination. Right, and then, then the stories just happen, and obviously wherever inspiration took him, like you said, he would just write about it. They have a movie out there about his life, I don't know if you've watched it, but... I haven't, I, yeah. need, I need to watch that though, but... And it talks about how he kind of, when he gets into his world, he gets into his world. Sure. And that's, you know, he's immersed in it, mm -hmm. and I'm, I, you know, I think that's probably what all creators, I think, especially of that caliber, that's probably how they, they get into oh, it. You'd it's have not to. just I'm dabbling. It's like I'm getting into his brain. Yeah, he went uh, he went neck deep into it, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, he didn't mess around. <laughs> but it's just amazing how a guy from Texas comes up with all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And just how, how vivid he is on his descriptions. So, yeah, so that's our – oh, to let's jump this back to – I was going to mention the – on the movie – the iconic intro to Conan the Barbarian with Basil doing the intro. Oh, yeah, the music. The, in the days when, you know, when the oceans drank Atlantis. Yeah. That is iconic. Oh, the, the whole soundtrack, to, well, not to just to Conan the Barbarian and also Conan the Destroyer, even though it has issues as a movie, the soundtrack to both of yeah. those is phenomenal. The yeah. music is just really sets the tone. Well, I guess, like I said earlier, when um, – when you have limited dialogue, like the music becomes like an, an integral part of telling that story, and it's it's just phenomenal. Yeah, I forgot to mention the music. But yeah, that intro, Basil, I don't remember his last name, but... Polidorius. Polidorius, yeah, yeah. I'm butchering it. But. He does one of the... In Samurai Jack, there's a cartoon called Samurai Jack, and he does the voice for the villain in that. And oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize the Back guy who did the, the music thousands. was also a, a voice actor, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's the same voice you can tell. Okay. When you, if you go look up Samurai Jack and the Aku is the villain. Yeah, I you remember can tell, Aku. You can tell it's his voice. Oh, okay. I think we're confusing two guys because I'm I'm talking oh. about the guy who um, scored the music. Oh, and you're okay. talking about the voiceover guy voice, who did yeah. like the. Um, yeah, like that intro before the seas drink yeah, Atlantis. Yeah, he, a, he tread the jewel thrones yeah. under his sandal feet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah okay, yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. I thought it was Basil, but I might be wrong on the name. Yeah, I so. don't know that. I thought was his name just Mako. Like Maybe he was so. like he was like Prince or Madonna. I thought like that actor. Oh, okay. I think his name was just Mako, but I could be wrong. It could be. Okay, yeah, it might be. So we'll have to look that up. Yeah. But and then we got another barbarian that we'll move into next, which is Thundar the Barbarian, the Saturday morning cartoon that was released in October of 1980 and went all the way to October of, of 1981 on ABC. I watched it when it reran on NBC in 1983. Okay. And it was done by Ruby Spears Production. Obviously, you can tell it's a, I wouldn't say knockoff, but a clone of Conan the Barbarian and 
kind of a Flash Gordon type mix. That one, I again, of course, as a kid, you always got up at Saturday at six, seven o'clock or whatever you, you wanted to get up. You grabbed your bowl of cereal and sugar-coated cereal, of course, oh, yep. that your mom didn't want you to eat, but she was probably still in bed. But you'd pop in front of the TV and watch your two or three channels that actually came in on your antenna. Oh yeah, that was a that was a big to do on those Saturday oh, mornings. Yeah. It was like the, uh, that was the one day a week you got like a steady stream of cartoons, other than the one or two in after school if you were lucky enough to get home after yeah. in time. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, Saturday morning was the time, and Thunder the Barbarian was the one one when it came on you're like oh my gosh this guy has a sword right it's like a lightsaber it's energy he was so different than any other cartoon at that time that i recall oh yeah and, and the uh, villains yeah it just he was hacking stuff throwing stuff and and i, I reason i remember is they used to I don't remember this but on friday nights when they before they started the cartoon season they would do a little 30 minute kind of preview of all the cartoons that are coming out. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and he was on one of those, and I remember seeing that. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I don't know, my mom was probably like, you can't watch that. (laughs) that is taboo. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah, Thundar was, uh, I I remember it as well. When he first came on, he was just so visually striking and different than anything else on Saturday morning, not only in um, just the level of, like, I don't know if you want to call it violence or just adult themes that was involved with it, but... You know, Jack Kirby, which obviously an icon of comic art, was involved in the art, and his style just like came through so strong in that series, and it just couldn't be denied. And yeah, so Thundar, I mean, clearly riding the the coattails of, of Conan's popularity at the time. And then I think what's interesting, like you said, it was kind of a mix of Flash Gordon. To me, it was almost more of a mix of Star Wars. Okay. Like, cause Star Wars obviously hugely popular at this time. And I think these, you know, these guys at uh, Ruby Spears Productions were like, how can we meld these, you know, maybe two popular genres together yeah. is this sword and sorcery and this sci-fi blitz that's going on right now and then you know voila you've got thundar with his sun sword you know aka lightsaber yeah <laughs> and yeah. like you know ukla aka chewbacca yeah, <laughs> it's just there's exactly so many right. parallels and then you got princess Aurelia, yeah ariel who is the the kind of the princess leah yeah exactly and um tough woman and you when they touched on all so i guess to back up a little bit Thunder the Barbarian takes place in a futuristic Earth where Earth has been destroyed or damaged dramatically. And side note, they didn't want to do, they thought about doing, the uh, the creators doing a post-nuclear world. Oh, really? They didn't want to scare the kids. Oh, so they did. So that was obviously in the 80s. That was a big, oh, yeah. big scare. The Cold War was going on and something that could happen. So hence the comet. Yes, so that's where they came up with the comet. Well, this is a little more unlikely, so let's just throw that. So comet comes by Earth, causes the moon to split in half, and takes off some of the atmosphere of the Earth, which lets more radiation in. And so now it was in the year 1994, so obviously it didn't happen. (laughs) So we're flash uh, fast forward 2,000 years. You're in the year 3,994, and the Earth has been transformed and. They have lots of pieces in the background of the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, Beverly Hills and New York. So you can see the skyline of the dilapidated skyline. Right. Wizards have kind of taken over a little bit. So it's a mix of different creatures have been irradiated. So now you have these whales that can shoot fire. And <laughs> you have these other creatures like his companion, Ukla, that looks kind of like Chewbacca. And then you have these wizards combined with technology. Right. Uh, you, you, you jog my memory on the whole, it was 2,000 years after the apocalypse that uh, Thundar kind of had his rise, and there was all these leftovers from, 
current day, you know, the and you can understand like the Golden Gate Bridge, maybe remnants of it still standing, or like the you know the uh, Statue of Liberty, which I remember was like in the first episode, like a wizard brought the Statue yes. of Li uh, Liberty to life. Yes. But there was always these hilarious things that like no way would last two thousand years. I remember like they, there would be some characters wearing like clothes like from our age, like, you know, like a sea captain's hat, like, you know, because he yeah. was on a boat or something. I'm like, all right, really? Did this fabric yeah. last yeah. 2,000 yeah. years? Yeah, I remember uh, reading about that. They're like, there's no way some of this stuff would right. last. There was an episode, I think, where they were like, they hot-wired a dune buggy that was 2,000 oh years old. Oh, my gosh. It's like, really? It's like, you're not... You <laughs> what are the odds? Yeah, yeah these tires are still around. This oh, rubber yeah. lasted 2,000 years. Yeah, you years. can't even get a tire to last two years, let alone <laughs> exactly. 2,000. That's a good totally. point. So, yeah, we had the, the three characters. So you had kind of they took those three. You have the Princess Ariel, who's kind of the, the brains of the bunch, so to speak. <laughs> then you have totally. the Thundar that's, I'm just going to get in the fight and, and do what you want, you know, do what I can to take out this guy. And then, of course, you have Ukla, who is kind of the humanoid uh, figure, but he's buds with uh, Conan, or not Conan, <laughs> buds with Thundar. Thundar. Yeah, he's that Chewbacca, that, uh, that yeah. furry superhuman sidekick. sidekick yeah, character. yeah. And they, they were, I think the, the story, backstory a little bit on him is they were slaves. Thundar led a helped start a slave revolt, and Ukla was a slave with him, and Princess Ariel came along with him to to take out to the guy that enslaved them as well. Yeah, and interesting you bring that up, jogs my memory, and it also ties to the Conan, where you were talking about there was that iconic prologue in Conan, where it's like, you know, before the seas drank Atlantis and the rise mm -hmm. of yep. whatever. The Thundar backstory was never addressed in any of the issues. It was just this iconic... Um, title sequence that they did that they showed him like getting free and befriending his friends and like you never get to you never get to see the origin story other than this like 20 second like yeah, you know intro. title intro yeah. all of a sudden yeah the comic comes and that's all you need to know yeah that's all yeah <laughs> character fully developed onto the episodes <laughs> but that's the, that's what i think was so simplistic and so fun about the show right it's like we don't need a backstory right you just need yeah. a guy with a sun sword he's got a sword he's friends. gonna chop some people up and and and, and like we were talking about this is different than He-Man. You know, He-Man would just throw a rock at somebody and, and get them stuck in a cave or punch something and a tree would fall down. But no, he used his sword. There was no very rarely robots. Uh, you know, he didn't mess around. If somebody fell out of something, you didn't see if they actually got back up. Yeah, just like you said, the He-Man... Um like you even talking about, you know, He-Man throwing a rock. Like he wouldn't even hit him with the rock. He would yeah. use the rock to like block them yes. or to like, you know, hit the log that they were standing on, which would knock them over into the pile yeah. of mud. You know, it was very like tame where in the Thundar comic or uh, cartoon, you've got Ukla. I remember he was famous for this, like picking up like just these random objects and like giving people the smack down. Yeah. Like he'd pick up like a VW bug or yeah. like rip a telephone pole out of the ground. And he was just, and he'd hit them with them. He, he would wouldn't wade through them. Yeah. He wouldn't just, throw it in front of him so they'd trip. He would hit them with it. Exactly. And they would fall, and sometimes you didn't know if – I don't know if they fell off a cliff, or, but it, it was yeah. – I mean, there, there was no blood. I don't think they'd allow that, but it was still – the violence was very accelerated for its time in the 80s and what they got away with uh, for a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, it was – and that's one of the reasons even the creators say that's one of the reasons it got canceled. Yeah. Is they're like, yeah, we're getting too many complaints from parents and kids – but kids are loving it. We're sitting there going, yeah! Exactly. Yeah, I can't imagine how uh, 
you know, I know there's millions of kids out there that probably weren't allowed to watch it. And my, my, my heart goes out to you if you missed, <laughs> you missed Thundar in the early 80s. Well, for those of you out there that want to watch it, it still is available on DVD. You can go to Amazon, and I'll put a link in the, in the show notes. You can go check it out, and you can still buy it and enjoy it. But one of the, the bad guys, the villains on there, is Gemini. And I, when I was researching him, he was the only foe to appear twice in the comic book. Really? And he's the guy that his head, he has two heads, and so he kind of rotates. So one, he's kind of like Manny faces, yeah. not He-Man, but <laughs> he has two heads. So his head would just rotate to the left and go behind him, and this little metal cap or whatever would go over the back, and he'd have two faces. Mm -hmm. And if you look at him, so look him up, Thundar the Barbarian, Gemini, and you'll find a picture of him. And you can tell his face looks a lot like Darkseid. Oh, which is the same creation that Jack, Jack Kirby, Kirby made. You can totally so see it. We've got it here, but if you go look it up, you can see his his, his face is a lot like Darkseid. Yeah, I, I'd never put that two and two together, but oh my gosh, he's like uh, he's almost a spinning image yeah. of Darkseid, and uh, and he was a he was a precursor to Manny Faces. Now that I think about it, because He Man didn't come out for a couple of years, and I'm trying to remember back to the cartoon when he switched faces. Was one like kind of his like. I'm uh I'm kind of trying to trick you. I'm trying to play the good guy, and then like you know, game's over. I'm gonna I'm gonna blast you with my laser eyes now. And yeah, I need to. I would have to rewatch it, but the only I only remember the the red eyes because he could shoot again energy out of his eyes, again just like Dark Side. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I'll have was to it look just it a up. gimmick, or did it actually have a part of the story? I, I got to go back and look at it again. I have to watch that episode. Yeah, later. yeah, I don't know. But he was the only <laughs> villain that appeared twice, which I I thought was neat. Well, yeah, well, I mean, they only had two seasons. I'm not even sure if they finished the second no. season before they went off the air. They so didn't have two seasons. They had the just the one, I think. Oh, was it just yeah. one? Okay. Yes, yeah, so they didn't have Because it went from October to October, so they probably usually did most of those in 22 episodes. Okay. So I would imagine it just had the one. They may not have had a whole lot of time to bring back recurring villains. Yeah, just he was. Yeah, exactly, because typically they just did. And, and like you said, these are just set stories. With not a lot of background, is he's yeah, just trying, I, you know, like bringing the Statue of Liberty life. That was his. He had to use the pearl to. Sorry, spoilers. He uses the pearl <laughs> to stop the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And I remember they're hacking away at the Statue of Liberty. This thing's made of metal. What are we gonna do? Right, right. Ukla threw like a VW bug at. Him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, nothing. yeah. I know. Yeah, if you watch the intro, he throws a VW bug, and I think it's kind of funny. He probably does that in every episode. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> We're just gonna throw a VW bug. But uh, but yeah, it's still available on DVD. They did have toys. They had a toy line with three by Tonami, and it came out in 2003. So it came oh, out a lot wow. later. Yeah, because I don't remember the uh, Thunder toy at all as a kid. And I did actually distinctly remember when He-Man came out, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's it's Thundar. And then, like, well, wait a minute. It's not quite Thundar. Not quite, quite Thundar. Thundar still but cool. but Still you know, awesome. Yeah, at the time, because that was my frame of reference, because Thundar came a couple of years uh, before Masters of the Universe. But... Um, I did not know they made a toy in the 2000s. Yeah, they only had the three main characters, I guess. Okay. And you can look it up. It's by Toynami, and it came out in 2003. Obviously for collectors and not for kids. Yeah, They're making yeah. a property 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, and I know we've talked about it. I think this is a property. They're rebooting everything. If you know They're doing She-Ra. There's yep. maybe a He-Man movie, which is still on the knife's edge of whether or not it's going to happen or not. Hopefully it does. But right. I think this would be a property that would be great. Thundercats are doing that. Yep, that got Voltron and got rebooted Voltron, not too yeah. long ago. But I think Warner Brothers owns the right to this now, and Warner they they own DC if I'm not mistaken, or they have or there's something in they, cahoots yeah, with each DC. other. 
So, you know, come on, DC, if you're listening yeah. to this, yeah. you had a great property sitting on your shelf just waiting to be, you know, dusted off. Exactly. Look at Motu. You got a huge following of, of fans from that are our ages in their 40s and even right. 50s. But, you know, they did the reboot back in the early 2000s, and I think they captured some younger fans. Right. There, well, I, I mean, DC just relaunched a bunch of those Hanna-Barbera yeah. characters. In their, you know, there's, I want to say, like Johnny Quest and Scooby-Doo yeah, and some of the Herculoids came back out, I think. Exactly. And, and, you know, come on. Give me some crossover. thunder. They're even doing crossovers. They did a, I read a Jabberjaw and Aquaman crossover comic. It's kind of a one-issue, one-shot. <laughs> they've done, I think, Daffy Duck and the Joker. I really? Mean, they're just doing, you can go look it up, but they've done some of these weird things. So I think Thundar, let's do a, they're even doing one with, the Injustice League, so they're doing Superman versus He-Man. I did see that on the shelves. I was down at uh, the Trader Tape not too long ago. I saw that sitting on the shelves, and I almost picked it up. I think that, I think, yeah, doing a Thundar comic book, maybe even just a limited series, yeah. doing a 12-issue limited just, series or just, six or something. Right. Just don't cross him over with Daffy Duck. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be, you know, DC, the powers that be. Thundar is waiting to happen. Just... Yeah, I will buy it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it would go over well, even if they either as a comic book or even a reboot anime sure. genre would be fun. So, well, Any other last no. comments on Thundar? No, the Thundar was great. Uh, I wish you would come back. I don't have any other comments, but uh, it, it just uh, we, we continue to stroll through the barbaric invasion here and what other sure. characters that uh, were around at that time. So the last one we want to look at is the Warlord. So you brought it up to my attention. I had never really, or at least I don't recall, seeing this comic book. But again, it has the, the barbarian flavor to it. So why don't you do a, a quick, let the listener know what, what the Warlord sure, is. Sure. So the, the Warlord was a DC comic, and, it, and it, I'd have to look at the timelines. It may have been an answer to the Conan popularity, or it may have been kind of running simultaneously to it. But it came out in 75. Okay. And so uh, pretty simultaneous then. Because I think we talked earlier, Conan was about that same time that Marvel started pumping out the yes. Conan. So maybe not an answer, but uh, kind of running parallel to it. So what you had was uh, Travis Morgan. He's an Air Force pilot back in the Cold War, and he uh, accidentally gets shot down over the polar ice caps. Instead of crashing into the polar ice caps, he goes through basically this hole in the Earth's crust, and he ends up inside this Earth inside the Earth, you know, this realm called Scartaris. He becomes like almost this uh, reverse barbarian or anti-barbarian. I don't know what you want to call it, but he's a civilized man. Obviously, you know, a fighter. He's a, you know, an Air Force guy. But he finds himself in a land of savagery, of, you know, swords and sorcery and dinosaurs and all sorts of creatures. And he reverts to being a barbarian. And actually, throughout the series, he becomes more barbaric than the land itself. And that's one of the recurring themes in it is this he has several opportunities to come back to the civilized land and like reacquaint with his family. And he keeps like, nope, this is who I am. You know, I am living the dream of being this free barbarian and all the dangers that come with it. And that's where Travis Morgan stays and becomes the warlord of Scartaris. Yeah. And the, when I was researching it, Scartaris is the name comes from a mountain peak that was in the Earth's core in the story Journey to the Center of the Earth, which obviously this has a lot of parallels. Right, right. So. Now you were you did some flying in the past. Did you ever find a hole in the earth? To no, I never had the uh, <laughs> never had the pleasure of flying over the polar uh, polarized caps, but also never had the pleasure of being shot down by Russians. So oh yeah, good point. I'm, I'm calling it squaresy. <laughs> yeah, good good point. Good point. But yeah, it was a really interesting story, and if I'll put a link to the cover of it, we were discussing the cover has the Comics Code Authority on it, 
But then right on the inside page has the warlord fighting this dinosaur and there's blood all over his body. As far as I know, the reason they had that was you couldn't do something like that. And it's red blood, which I thought was interesting. They were pretty, back in the day, they were pretty picky about showing a lot of blood. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that until you brought that up when we were talking earlier that uh, yeah, this still had the American Comic Code you know, seal of approval. And uh, it was a fairly violent comic book, and looking back at some of these images that you printed out, yeah, I mean, there's there's blood, and there's I mean, there's blood on his knife, and like, yeah, even the even the dinosaurs bleeding. I mean, it's a it's a full on well, knife he, fight. Yeah, exactly. It's very yeah. He's he's cocked back, ready to stab, and then even the dialogue he swears, which again, the Comics Code Authority was pretty stringent right. on that, and so you didn't usually see any swearing, and you didn't see any blood. So I don't know, maybe the rules back in the 70s were different or this one slid under the radar and this came out in 75 and just to recap the conan comics that marvel did start in 70 so this was probably oh maybe it was a little bit of dc's answer, answer to conan yeah because they had a lot of that back in the day yeah i remember claw was another one that dc tried to answer okay they even stole some of the artists away from marvel <laughs> yeah. to do some of their art but uh, that happened a lot yeah uh, but yeah, getting back to the the warlord, you know, and the comics code. I, I'm just thinking back now. In addition to the violence, there was some like moral ambiguity in the warlord's character too, where he wasn't necessarily um, heroic for like benevolent needs all the time. Sometimes he was heroic just because he like a bloodlust would come upon him, and like he just wanted to wade into the fight. And there would be like other characters that have to like calm him down and kind would, of pull him back. Right. And he would kind of do some morally flexible things to like in order to like get his like fix, basically, sure. which was like he loved the adrenaline of the fight and the living the barbaric life. And even some of his companions, I remember, like he kind of made this it wasn't like marriage per se, but like this oath to this one queen of the barbarians, this girl named Tara. Tara. Yeah. 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 But yet he always had this female, like, shape-shifting co companion named um, Shakira. Like, she could be a cat or she could be a woman. And they would go on these adventures by themselves. And, like, Tara was always, like, super jealous. And it never, like, you know, showed much physical intimacy. But it was very, like... Implied. Implied that there was, like, some hanky-panky going on. You know, <laughs> the warlord wasn't necessarily the greatest of guys, you know. That's interesting that he's not this perfect as... We would prop up the perfect hero, but right. in a callback to Conan, you know, he was he was pretty chivalrous, chivalrous. I'm not saying it right, but a lot of chivalry. But he was kind of the same way. It was kind of his own law, right? But yet, I guess we we all found that as a reader maybe appealing, right? But, uh, yeah, because Conan almost he had like a different lady almost every oh, episode, yeah. or at least you know every couple of episodes. But in in his defense, he never really made like any sort of oath or commitment. No. To one, like, I mean, Warlord had a, a child yeah. with Tara. Oh, okay. And, okay. you know, once Conan, you know, he became king, like, he ended up marrying Zenobia, and, and he was pretty faithful at that point, as far as I know. That's Correct true. me if I'm wrong, Robert E. Howard, yeah. you know, fanatics, but whereas Travis Morgan and the Warlord, he Didn't was. Didn't care. Yeah, he, he came and go as his feelings went, and yeah, it was kind of way more morally flexible than. That was a little different, friends. especially for that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so if you look at the description, it says the kind of the, the plug that they have for the warlord. In the savage world of Skataris, life is a constant struggle for survival. Here beneath the unblinking orb of eternal sunlight, one simple law prevails. If you let down your guard for an instant, you will soon be very dead. <laughs> so that's that's iconic almost of that time of the of the plugs that they kind of gave. Yeah. 
And I'm actually, I'm looking at this, and this is cracking me up. I'm, I'm tying two pieces together here. So the picture of Tara we're looking at, she's kind of got like this, um, for lack of a better term, like fur swimwear on. Yeah. Where, you know, it's got like, it's like a bikini, except it's made out of fur, and it's got like some vertical straps. And if you flip back a couple pages to the picture of uh, Thundar, uh-huh. very similar outfit. Like, you know. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's got that vertical fur-striped uh, yes. kind of onesie, <laughs> for lack of a better term. The fur onesie, kind of like the fur diaper on uh, Master's Universe right. that they wear. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm almost picturing like this uh, – like a fashion magazine at the time, like who wore it better? And having like a picture of Tara next to a picture, a picture of, of Thundar. <laughs> Vote here. <laughs> That's awesome. Maybe we'll have to do a poll on that. Who wears it better? That would be awesome. Well, now that, to tie them all together, if you think of a Belitz character in the Conan yeah. comic books, John by John De, uh, Buscema, very similar fur onesie. Fur onesie, <laughs> yeah, in which is she's wearing right there. Right. Well, yeah, I guess. What is it? The good artists borrow, but great artists steal. Exactly, great. So that's that's might be the case here. Yeah. They have a one thing. He got a lot of influence, I guess, on this is from Edgar Burrow, Edgar Rice Burroughs writing that he did, and he did a lot of this. They had the same type of concept. Oh yeah. The in, inside of the earth was hollow, and it had this whole different savage sure. world in it. Well, I can see that reflected with. Um, I mean, Tarzan's. He was a a product of a civilized world that was raised into savagery, kind of like Warlord, except Warlord did it much later than obviously Tarzan was kind of an infant when it happened. And then even um, Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, John Carter from Mars, same thing. He was like a Civil War soldier that ended up being thrust into a very barbaric uh, landscape on Mars and ended up becoming very part of it and accepting the barbaric nature of it. So I can see a common theme running through that. Yeah, I've read a, a couple of the... I've read Tarzan. I've read the first couple of his uh, John Carter and Mars series, but I, it, he's got like I don't know how many dozen of some of those dozen. books, and and I know those have been made into comics as well. I think Dynamite has the rights to the John right. Carter, but yeah, uh, still doing it. yeah it's been running for quite a while. There's a lot to pull from there. Yeah, but yeah. The main antagonist in the Barbarian is uh, Demos. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm not sure. Yeah, D- Demos or Demios. Demios. Yeah. It, it's a comic book. You pronounce however you want. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you're probably right. There is no... Exactly. <laughs> but he has, again, some Atlantean ties, I guess. He's pulling some of their technology, I guess, from uh, New Atlantis. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. They, they thought it was magic, but it's actually technology that he's using. Yeah, because when... Uh, I, I forgot about that. When Atlantis sunk below the oceans on the surface, it, like, resurfaced in its own form or fashion down in Scartaris. Yeah. And this was pre, you know, um, Travis Morgan time. So even down there, Atlantis is like a forgotten culture with like there's remnants of technology or magic or laying about still. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool that yep. they pulled again from that, which again, Robert E. Howard, the Atlantis mm-hmm. whole thing. And he's kind of pulling that in as well. So I thought that was a good, good way. And he uses his knowledge, of course, to he's got a little bit of angst against Travis because I think when he first shows up he does something to antagonize him and he's kind of right. from then on yeah he's mad this guy's gonna try to take my power yeah I think he was like not a court magician but he's kind of like one of an advisor to a king or something like that and he was kind of weaseling his way into power this yeah. Demios villain and Travis Morgan kind of came and upset the status one quo and then and like he you know becomes dis- deposed and he moves out to the fringe of like the polar ice cap where like the earth curls back on itself and lives in this world of darkness and uh, yeah. plots against Travis Morgan. And 
uh, it's just bringing back more and more memories because uh, you know, hearkening back to how potentially violent this comic book was for its age, I recall in like the first story arc or maybe the second story arc, um, Travis Morgan has this child with Tara and Demios ends up kidnapping the kid and then clones the child and then Travis Morgan, he tricks Travis Morgan into basically killing the clone of his own kid which is like super dark. Yeah. And then um, not knowing that the real kid is like Demios has hidden him away somewhere else. And the kid, you know, kid grows up to be a, a, a character later, but it goes on for a large portion of the warlord comics where the warlord's wrestling with this grief. Cause he believes he's killed his own he's child, you know? So it's just, wow. it kind of gets a little dark. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I totally forgot. Wow. I think I did read that. Demios had died several times and comes back. And he does. He does. He lasts through the whole run. I think it was 133 issues, or 144 issues it yeah. ran. But uh, but yeah, I thought it was it was kind of neat. Every time he comes back, I remember he gets like more and more messed up. Like <laughs> somehow face like, disfigured. Right, like some wolf DNA got mixed in. Like he had like wolf ears and claws in one iteration, and then he was like a skeleton in one iteration. It was just yeah, he just gets more and more fearsome as it goes. <laughs> Well, that was they did uh, reboot it a couple times. It uh, came back later. I think DC brought it back. I think it was f- now they've gone up to four times they brought it back. They brought it back. I think a twelve issue limited series. Yep. But have you read any of the the reboots? Yes, so to speak. Yeah, I've collected all the original run. I I think I've done all but one of the reboots that they did. And then I'm I'm trying to collect in DC's Convergence storyline, like where they kind of blend a lot of their different yeah. multiverses together or whatever. Like, I guess he and some of his, uh, the Warlord and some of his friends make an appearance and they're like... Pirates know, or something. They're lumped they? in with the Teen Titans. or I can't oh, remember. Okay. So I'm trying to find those ones where those kind of worlds have blended together. But uh, I'm not speaking too knowledgeably on it. I got to find them. But Probably, probably your first love is the, the original right. run, though. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's what you grew up on, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he's the, he and some of those characters still float around the DC universe. So. Yeah, yeah, and I was reading that in the if you remember the Justice League Unlimited cartoon that they did back in the early two thousands, they have an episode called Chaos at Earth's Earth's Core. Green Lantern and Supergirl and some of the others end up in uh, Skataris and teamed up with him to stop Demios. Yeah. And so I thought that was interesting. They yeah. kind of do a throwback. There was even some um, some of the later comics in the world that I remember. There was there was one annual I recall that it might have been Darkseid that tried to come down and like take over Skartaris, and then like some of like the um, I don't remember some of the good guys came down too, but they weren't they weren't like the Justice League. They were some somebody else, and I, I am having a terrible memory. But no, that's uh, fine. That's fine. So there was even some crossovers in the original huh, comic as well. I didn't know where that. They, yeah, where they fit into the DC universe. Well, they did come out with some toys. In 1982, they made some action figures called The Lost World of the Warlord, and it was done by Rimco. Yeah. Travis Morgan was one of the figures, along with Demos, Machist, Machiste, yeah. Machiste, Mikola, Rostov, and Eric, and Hercules. Okay. Yeah, and I, I've actually seen, I remember some of those characters, and actually some of them are advertised in the Warlord comics that I have uh, from my youth. You can see the ads, and... It is clear that it was a Remco you said. Yeah, Remco. Yeah. They clearly had somebody break into Mattel and steal the molds from <laughs> He-Man because they are like this. Oh, really? Like the body of the Warlord is like clearly He-Man's body, and they just put oh, a new rubber head on funny. it. That's funny. And um, yeah, if you're ever back down at uh, behind the glass at Nate's shop, he has one of them really? behind the shelf. He has the Warlord toy. That's and, awesome. Um, 
he, he tells me he won't sell it to me at any cost. <laughs> he, he's keeping that one forever. That's but his. Yeah, huh? it, it's still, oh, in, it's still awesome. in the case, and it is awesome. Oh, it's, it's still, still in the box? It's still in the box. Ooh. And, uh, yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And it's it's clear that uh, Mattel could have, you know, sued Remco for some okay. copyright infringement, maybe. That's funny. Did, did you have any of those or no, not? No, okay. I did not have any, unfortunately. Okay. I wish I did. but Yeah, well, for a hefty price, yeah, I'm sure. you probably can go on eBay and find one. I am sure I could. But then your wife would probably kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much did you pay for this? Yeah, just a car payment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll be all right. <laughs> Who needs a car? I have the Warlord. Yeah, exactly. Can you take a? You could take a payment. Does the bank take payment in Warlord figures? That's right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Then April two thousand seven, the Warlord became an action figure based upon a modern update in the series four of DC Direct's first appearance figures. So okay. they kind of did a reboot. Of that. And then in 2010, Warlord became an action figure based on the animated version of the Justice League Unlimited toy line. So awesome. based upon that cartoon appearance, they made a figure from, from that one as well. He just keeps coming back. I guess. He just can't keep him down. Like I said, they keep rebooting him. I don't know which reboot they're on but or which version they're up to. But if you are a Goonies fan... You can see in the background in the the Warlord issue number 89 is on a deleted scene in a magazine rack at the convenience store on the Goonies DVD. No kidding. So if you own the Goonies DVD, go to one of the deleted scenes and you can see an issue. Issue number 89 of the Warlord is in the background. As if the Goonies needed one more reason to be totally awesome, right? I know. (laughs) One more reason. one more reason. In fact, I think if you listen to... If you listen to Daydream Instruction Manual, which is a podcast, Eddie and Jeff and Billy are on there, and Jeff's talking about his some of his early memories, and Goonies was one of the influences early in life because he wanted to have a group of friends like the Goonies. He didn't want to be a jock. He wanted to have this, go on an adventure and, and have these guys that weren't jocks. They were just kind of nerdy and kind of the misfits and, and hanging out. So check that out, Daydream Instruction Manual, if you guys want to get another good podcast to listen to. Any closing thoughts or ideas on, we've touched on Conan, Thunder the Barbarian, and now the Warlord. This was, this was great to have me on. It brought back so many yeah. great memories of, of these barbarians that we grew up with. And, you know, we could probably go on for another hour or two bringing in, like, the Beastmaster oh, and, yeah. and all these yeah. other ones. But uh, I just really appreciate you having me on, on the oh. show. And uh, I hope I didn't muck it up too bad. No, hey, fine. No, no, I enjoyed the conversation. It's glad, good to have somebody similar age, similar interest to talk to. Right. And you can see Lee's art. We should call it the Lee and Lee show, maybe. <laughs> anyway. Oh, crap. It's Lee and Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and at the, uh, on your Facebook page, you got a Facebook page. I do. Art of Lee Bachma, yep. right? Okay. So go to the Facebook, just search Art of Lee Bachma, and you can find it. You can probably just type in Bachma, and it'll probably show up. Yep. But uh, check out his art, and if you're interested, he draws a lot of good retro art of Thunder the Barbarian, other retro art that you can check out. Also, you um, might be going to some cons maybe in the future, so yep. that'll be in the plans. I got a schedule or three or four coming up this spring and summer. I plan on hitting here in the Omaha, Lincoln, uh, Grand Island area, so I'm looking forward to that. And um, some of my work's down at the Behind the Glass that we mentioned yes. earlier, and uh, yeah, so yeah, a lot of it's influenced by these early uh, barbarians and others influenced from my childhood. So Well, let's not get crazy. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thanks. Well, thanks, Lee. There you have it. The barbarian invasion. It, like I said, it was a lot of fun to do this episode. It was great just to sit down and talk with him. So go to covertnerd.net to give me some feedback on the episode. I would really appreciate it. 
You can email me, cn at covertnerd.net. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. But the easiest way is just to go to covertnerd.net, click on the links there, and you can get in touch with me. So thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. And until next time, nerd it up.